If you would, take your Bible and open to the book of Esther. The book of Esther is two books left of the book of Psalms in your Bible. So if you find the book of Psalms generally there in the middle of your Bible, and you go backward, go back left just a little bit, you'll get to the book of Esther, and that's where we're going to be this morning and next week as well. We're going to take Esther in, in two different parts between now and, and next week. Esther is going to be a bridge of sorts for us between what we've been doing in Ezra and Nehemiah and then where we're going to be going over the Christmas holiday, looking at the women of Christmas, the women of the Christmas story. And so Esther is a, is a key figure there as we see how God is at work in the world and, and what he wants to do in our lives. And so a book that maybe we don't know quite as well, but we're going to read a lot of over the next two weeks. We'll skip a few verses just for time reasons, but we're going to read a lot of this book just together as a church family. And I hope it's of interest to you enough that you'll go home and just read through the book yourself a couple of times because I think you'll see a lot of things that show us about God's work in, in our lives. A couple of things before we get to Esther this morning. First, thank you so much for, for bringing these Operation Christmas Child boxes. The ladies uh, text me this last week, and when they text me, we were at 1,185 boxes. I'm not sure if we've gone up since then or not, but just an incredible way to share the gospel around the world, and so thankful for that. And you'll continue to see over the next couple of weeks as our lobby fills up with boxes from other churches that come here. Uh, we'll have a couple of semi-trailers out, outside the building that we'll be filling up, and so we'd love for you uh, to be able to serve and, and help in that way. We're excited about that. Also, we have a group of teenagers and sponsors who are at Falls Creek this weekend. I'm not sure where the total ended up, but they were 80 or 90 of, of our junior high and high school students, and then it felt like 80 or 90 sponsors. I think they were kind of doing a one-to-one -one ratio, but there were a lot of sponsors who were, who were going down there, and they were spending the weekend at, at Falls Creek. The only report I've gotten back so far is that Cody, our student pastor, has a little less leg hair than when he left uh, to go down there. So uh, I'm sure it's been a spiritually significant weekend and, and their lives have been impacted in a lot of ways. But the only report I've gotten back is that Cody has less leg hair uh, than when, when he went. Um, so I think a little wax did its job and, and that was, uh, that's what happened. So I'm sure you'll hear more reports, better reports than that, but uh, they're, they're having a good time down there at, at Falls Creek this, this weekend. So let's move our minds and hearts toward Esther. I wanna pray a blessing over you and then we're gonna, we're gonna study God's word together. Father, thank you for the gift of, of a church family. God, I pray that if there are those here this morning who maybe Maybe it's been a little while since uh, they were able to be a part of a worship service and just seeking your will, seeking to gather and pray together, sing together. We know that the book of Esther might not be the, the first one we always turn to in Scripture, God, but there's so much here uh, that you want us to see. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who comes in carrying just really heavy weight, weight of pain in life, weight of regret, or guilt, or shame, God, that they would be able to look to Jesus and find rest and hope and peace. And God, knowing that salvation comes through no other name but Jesus. And God, I pray that our hearts would turn back to him. And God, help us right now to open our hearts and minds to focus on your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, 
Amen. So imagine living in a world where powerful political leaders use massive wealth to throw lavish parties to impress key supporters. Imagine living in a world where these leaders save face by using scare tactics and violent oppression. Imagine a world where political leaders take advantage of young women sexually, exploiting and mistreating women and generally devaluing women. Where these same political leaders fail to make decisions, instead allowing those around them to dictate key decisions and policies. Where political operatives take advantage of their position and access to key leaders in order to destroy their opponents, including whole groups of society. You could be in Persia in the 5th century B.C., or frankly, you could probably be anywhere in the West in the 21st century A.D., Sometimes we wonder, hey, why do we read these stories from the Bible? Are they pertinent to what's going on in the world today? How's the Bible relevant? Friends, I can guarantee you that the book of, Re- the book of Esther is relevant to the world that we live in, to the lives that we live. That when we come to this book, that you would think about two questions. And really, this is a good scheme, a good framework to use when you come to any book in the Bible. But there's the God question And there's the human question. There's the God question of of how is God at work in this situation? How is God at work? Where do we see God showing up in this book? And then how does that shape our lives? How do we respond to who God is and what he's doing in the world? A little Bible trivia. The book of Esther is one of only two books in the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned. The other is the Psalms of Solomon, And there's one word in there that a lot of scholars believe is a reference to the name of God based on the way that the Hebrew letters are set up. So usually, the trivia question will say, what's the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned? And the answer is the book of Esther. So you're saying God's not involved in the book of Esther? Oh, not at all. God is actively involved in the story of Esther, except The name of God does not show up. God's actions are not overt. They're not out front. They're not obvious. And how often does this happen in our lives? We love it when God works in those miraculous ways, those ways that everyone can see, the ways that are so overt and obvious. But most of the time, God's work in our life is more in the mundane, behind-the-scenes sort of ways. Coming to believe that God is at work even when I can't see him working in the way I want to see him working. Coming to believe that God is at work and in control even when it doesn't feel like it. Even when what we've wanted in life, what we've expected has not happened. That we believe even when it's not obvious, even when it's not overt, that God is in control and God is at work. We'll talk about this some more later, but it's, it's the doctrine, it's the $100 theology word, providence. This idea that God is guiding and providing and shaping the world according to his purposes even when it's not obvious. And we live in a world that feels like that in a lot of ways where it doesn't always seem obvious. God, what exactly are you up to? Like, why is this situation happening? Why is this situation happening in my life? Why is this situation happening on the worldwide scope? What's going on, God? Where are you showing up here? And the book of Esther is a reminder to us that God is faithful and he's at work even when we don't see it. 
And the opposite of that, not the opposite of that, the other side of the coin of that is how should that reality shape our lives? Because God is at work. He's at work through his people in in incredible ways. And when we read the book of Esther, when we read these books in the Old Testament, we don't want to read them just as morality stories. There are things that Esther does that we should not turn around and do. We don't read the book of Esther and say, well, then we should obviously just do X, Y, and Z. But there are ways that the book of Esther should shape our lives, that we should live differently as a result of reading this book. This book is the one that has that famous verse in there where Esther is asked the question, is it not possible that you have been placed in this situation for such a time as this? You may have heard that phrase before, that God has placed you in a situation and so orchestrated the events that he gives you a chance to respond in faith and obedience for such a time as this. So as we go through this book, I want you to see how God's at work, even when his name doesn't show up, and I want you to think about how should this story shape my life? How does this story change the way I respond to God? Verse one, let's go for it. We're gonna read a lot of verses today. Up on the screen, in front of you, Bible app in your phone, whatever that looks like. And there are some hard names, so just, you know, be kind to me. Um, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The giving of feast is going to be a key theme in in Esther. You're going to see this showing up over and over again. The army of Persia and Media And the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Now that's a party. Some of you guys take a birthday month. Like this is a party that lasts for 180 days. This is a serious party that's given here. Verse 5, and when these days were completed, the king turned around and gave for all the people present in the citadel both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. In other words, this dude was rich, incredibly, incredibly rich. Verse 7. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. The way that reads out is that there were no restrictions. This brings open bar to a whole new level. Like just the command of the king is that there are no restrictions on the amount of wine that's available here. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And you might make note in your Bible of that very last phrase there, as each man desired. There's a little reference in the book of Judges in the Old Testament that talks about when the world is spiraling spiraling out of control, everyone does what is right in his own eyes. The situation that is being set up here in the book of Esther in the first chapter 
is someone who is living for all the pleasures of this world. They have all the political power you could ever imagine. They have all the money you could ever imagine, all the fame you could ever imagine, and they are just living it up and inviting everyone else to do the same. Live however you want, do whatever you want, live for the pleasures of this world. Now the irony of this is by the time this book would have been written, everyone would know that King Ahasuerus, who also is sometimes known as King Xerxes, that his kingdom has crumbled. Like this wealth that he has, all the pleasures of the world, friends, they don't last. They look good. They can bring you a lot of popularity. It looks enticing, but it doesn't fulfill ultimately, and it doesn't last. And so we're being invited into a world here that's pretty dark spiritually. Not pretty dark, it's really dark spiritually. We're being invited into a story where people are doing whatever they want with no regard for any spiritual restraint, any divine guidance. And if it feels familiar, it feels familiar for a reason because we still live in a world that feels dark in a lot of those ways where people search after power and pleasure trying to find fulfillment in life but it doesn't fulfill and it doesn't last. Verse nine. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now if you wanna know what the male-female relationships are like in this kingdom, let that verse kinda guide you. It's not her palace, it's not a palace that they, that they share. She just happens to live there as the queen. The palace really belongs to the king, but she gets to give a feast as well for, for the women. On the seventh day, verse 10, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Biktha, that's a great name, Biktha, and Abiktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Verse 12, Queen Vashti said, not a chance. <laughs> uh, she refused to come to the king's command delivered by the eunuchs, and this king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Now, if that verse and that series of verses kind of turns your stomach a little bit or gives you a bad feeling, just prepare yourself because it doesn't get a whole, a whole lot better. Um, Queen Vashti is about to be paraded in probably a very inappropriate way before all these other guys that came to the king's party. And she just says, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Well, what happens in the next verses? We're not going to read the rest of verse one, or chapter 1 in, in all its entirety, but what happens is the king turns around and says, hey, what are we going to do about this? Queen Vashti disobeyed me. She's not going to come and walk in front of these guys. What, what am I going to do about it? And so he turns to his assistants, and they say, whoa, time out. If your wife disobeyed you and didn't come in front of you, What's going to happen when our wives hear about this and all the other ladies in, in the kingdom? They're going to stop doing what we want them to do. So we need to send out a rule into the kingdom that says that Queen Vashti, she's no longer queen because she didn't do what she was supposed to do. And we need to make sure all these guys are ruling their household in the right way. Now this is an incredibly boneheaded move because what's happened here? They were worried that all these other wives in the kingdom were going to find out. So what do they do? 
they make sure that all the other wives find out. They send out a royal edict into the kingdom that says what has happened, that now Queen Vashti is no longer the queen. And by the way, guys, make sure you're ruling your household and, and making sure your wives are staying in line. As you can imagine, this is not going to go well. Like, they're, they're not going to respond well necessarily to this. Not only that, but it's just a stomach-turning idea to think about the role of, of men and women together. So that takes us to chapter 2. Chapter 2, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, had gone down, he remembered Vashti, oh yeah, his wife, that, that he geeked out, he's no longer queen, his ex-wife, and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. And if you're asking yourself, does that verse mean what I think it means? Yes, it does. And, and yes, it does make us sick. And yes, it does have all the brokenness and darkness that, that we would imagine being involved here. Verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Little mental note, that's going to become important in a second. I know it seems like just a strange list of names. It's going to matter here in just a minute. Verse 6 who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Now this Mordecai, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. So Esther is an orphan, and she is being raised by her cousin, who is most likely much older than, than she is. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict was proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young, women, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace. And he advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So here's Esther a young orphan girl, and let's just say it like it is because it'll, it'll really connect well with the world we live in. She's being sex trafficked is exactly what's happening here. Her, along with many other young women in the kingdom, are being brought into the, the king's palace to be a part of, of his harem. And, and the, the custom was that these ladies would be with the king one time and then many of them, in fact, most of them would never be invited back. They would be with the king one time and then they would just cycle right back into the harem where they would live out the rest of, of their lives. And Esther is brought into this situation and Mordecai, her cousin, who has in some sense adopted her and is raising her, he's really concerned about her, as you can imagine he would be. The key is they are both Jews, 
Mordecai and Esther are both Jews, but Mordecai says, sweetheart, you can't let the king know this. Like, this is something you've got to keep hidden. We can't allow the king to know this at this time. And so Esther begins to get, gain favor in, in the harem. She becomes this prominent young woman there. And then look what happens when you get into to verse 16. Verse 16, when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther, and the word loved, ugh, you know, kind of, again, turned your stomach a little bit there, but the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. This is where we get the Bible story of Queen Esther. Verse 18, then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He was also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate doing his job. He was a royal official who would sit at the gate and conduct business. So he was sitting there one day, and Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on the king. This came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the situation was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So here's Esther. She's made queen. She's on the inside now. Mordecai is just going about doing his job as one of the city officials. He finds out there's a, an assassination plan against the king. He relays the information back to Esther. She gets it to the king. Esther and Mordecai are heroes. And what they've done is recorded in the king's book. Not the end of the story. Chapter 3. Verse 1, there is a sleazy character coming in, in chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. If you like to write in your Bible, let me give you a couple of references to write here in your Bible at chapter 3, verse 1. 1 Samuel 15 and Deuteronomy 25. 1 Samuel 15 and Deuteronomy 25. Here's why this matters. It says here in chapter 3, verse 1, that Haman is an Agagite. Now, Agag is a character that Saul ran up against in 1 Samuel chapter 15. He is, in fact, from the group known as the Amalekites. You push it further back into the Bible story, the people of God were supposed to have destroyed the Amalekites, but they didn't do it, and now it's come back to haunt them. So when you see Haman referred to as an Agagite here, it is a reference to people who were enemies of the Jewish people. They were bullies, and they were considered to always be enemies of the Jewish people. So it's no accident that Mordecai and Esther come from the Benjamites, which would have been the tribe of Saul, and now they're going to be opposed by Haman, who comes from the Amalekites. This is one of those amazing places in the Bible 
where you see how all the storylines converge and come together the way that God has shaped his word to be given to us. So, so these two figures throughout history have been opposed to one another, and now Mordecai and Haman are going to play that out on this stage. Verse 2, all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And then in verses 3 and 4, the king's servants go and tattletale uh, about Mordecai that he's not bowing down to Haman. Verse 5, and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So it's not enough for Haman just to get Mordecai killed. He is so angered by Mordecai and, remember, their thousand-year history before this, that he says, I'm just going to destroy all the Jews at this point. The next few verses in this chapter begin to lay out how this edict is going to go out into the kingdom and what's going to happen. If you go down to verse 12, the beginning of verse 12, it says that the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written. Down about the middle of verse 13, you find out what was written. This letter that goes out, it goes out with instructions to destroy, kill, and annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So it's pretty obvious what's happening here. All the Jews in this kingdom have a bounty on their head, and there's one day that's picked out that they're all going to be killed, all going to be destroyed. Thankfully, the story doesn't end there. The question is, how is it resolved? Chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And we find out in the next few verses that many people join him in this mourning and this crying. Verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. So Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend to her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was happening. So she sends one of her servants to say, why is, why is my cousin so distraught over this situation? Verse 9. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said, that all the Jews were going to be killed. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces, down in verse 11, all these people know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Maybe the king's getting tired even of Esther and, and all of her beauty, and so he's relying on the other virgins, the other harems. She hasn't been called before him, and she knows if she goes in and she's not invited, she's dead, story over. 
Verse 12, they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Meaning, God's not going to abandon his people. He's going to hold true to his promises. But you and your father's house will absolutely perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And check out this phrase. If I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. With that last verse, you can see the story starting to change because up to this point, the Bible tells us that Esther had obeyed Mordecai. Now, she's been placed in this prominent role, and what do we find in this verse? That Mordecai obeys Esther. Mordecai does what Esther says. You can see the story starting to shift. Next week, we'll take chapter 5 and, and go through the end of the story. We're going to stop there this morning because of time, and we're going to ask these two questions. How do we see God at work, and how should this story shape the way we live our lives? Number one, you're not in those first four chapters going to see the name of God mentioned, but do you sense the way that God is at work, the way God is moving in these circumstances, the way God is bringing together all these rivers from the Bible into this one story, how he is in control of the situation. Believing that God is at work, even when we can't see him, even when it doesn't feel like he's in control, even when things are not happening the way we want, that God is sovereign over politics and problems, and if I can throw another P in there, pandemics, <laughs> that God is good, that he's in control, that he is faithful, that he works not just in the miraculous things. We love miracles when they happen. They're beautiful, they're powerful, they're, they're markers of his love. But more often in life, we find God's faithfulness in those behind-the-scenes, mundane, everyday ways, that he's faithful and he's with us. And as his people, we learn to trust him in those ways. Think of how many times in your life that you look back and it wasn't the big decision that really made the difference in your life. It was all these small decisions along the way. It was all these small circumstances. Sometimes something big happens in our life and we're like, that's going to be a huge turning point and it's not really a big deal. And something really small, like one person introduces you to another person and that introduction changes your life forever because of the way God brings people together in families, that, that a job happens, and it's not that job that makes a difference, but it's the job that comes as a result of that job. All these ways that God and his providence guides things to work according to his purposes and his plans to bring salvation to the world. And it's easy when the pastor stands on stage and tells you to trust God and his providence, it is stinking hard when you're in the middle of a situation that you don't understand, 
that you didn't expect, that you didn't want, and you just don't know what's going to come of it. In that moment, to say, God, I don't see you, I don't feel you, I don't understand this, but I will worship you, and I will trust you, because I believe that you're good, and I believe that you are at work. And when we understand that, it doesn't remove us from the equation, it allows us to live in a way that is faithful to the Lord, because God is not only at work, but God is specifically at work through his people. That his providence shapes people who then respond to him in faith and worship and obedience. He shapes people who are ready to respond for such a time as this. Day after day, week after week, God works in your life in little ways until the moment comes that you've got to make a big decision. And you're ready for that big decision because of all these little ways that God has prepared you along the way. When we think about the way that Esther's life is shaped, the way that I can describe this to you is using these three questions, these three terms that were developed by the Fuller Youth Institute. Um, there's a group at Fuller Seminary that studies teenagers on a generational basis, and, and they're really probably just the best in the world at doing this from a Bible uh, perspective, Christian worldview perspective, but they do a lot of uh, statistical da data work on the faith of teenagers, and so you'll hear me reference their work from time to time. But a couple of years ago, they interviewed thousands of teenagers about things they were facing in life and what was going on in their lives, and they boiled it down to teenagers were dealing with three key questions, three key concepts. Who am I? What's my identity? Where do I fit? Like, how badly we want to belong to a group. We want to be a part of something that's going on. We're looking for our place that we fit. And what is my purpose in life? Like, how can I make a difference? And what you find in Esther's life is the more she understands her identity, who God has created her to be, and the more she understands herself as part of her people, the Jewish people, the more she's able to carry out her purpose in life. The more I know my identity, the more I know where I fit, the more I'm able to see the way that God has prepared me to make a difference in the world. As you care for kids and teenagers in your life, they're looking for identity, who are they? Think of all the identity questions that are faced with because of social media. Like, who am I? What am I called to do in this world? Where do I fit? Like, what group am I a part of? We need to know that with our identity, friends, your identity is based on Jesus Christ. Not what other people say about you. Not your past. Not what you achieve tomorrow. Your identity as a person is grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you were created by a good and loving God, that even in your brokenness, Jesus gave his life for you so that your life is stable and secure, not because you're holding things together, but because he is, and he is good. And when your identity is found in Jesus, our belonging is found as part of the people of God, that I don't have to prove myself or impress others in order to fit in. I fit in because we all together are looking toward Jesus. And when we understand what it means to be a part of the church, the purpose of our life is transformed. I think one of the clearest pictures of this, and we're going to end with these verses, is found in Hebrews chapter 11. If you wouldn't mind going to Hebrews chapter 11 in your Bible, we're going to read these verses. I'll guide us to an, an end point here, but I want you to think about this concept of identity, belonging, purpose. And I want you to see it 
in Hebrews chapter 11 because it, it provides a really clear picture through the life of Moses here. Next week, as we get further into the Esther story and wrap this up, you're going to see the way that God brings salvation to his people, the, this, how all of this points toward Jesus. We'll do a lot of work next week to, to show how the book of Esther ties into the story of Jesus in the New Testament and the salvation that God brings to his people. But Hebrews chapter 11 is that famous hall of faith chapter lineup of people of faith. And there's a couple of verses about Moses that might as well describe the life of Esther and, and what we've been talking about this morning. Let's start in verse 24. By faith, Moses, so this is Hebrews eleven twenty-four. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Stop right there just for a minute. <laughs> what was Moses' identity going to be? The son of Pharaoh's daughter or a child of God? He had to determine what his identity was. Who was he going to belong to? Was he going to associate his life with the Egyptians and live for the pleasures of this world? Or was he going to see his life as part of the people of God being shaped according to God's covenant and, and God's design? So Moses was faced with the identity question, who am I? And he was faced with the belonging question. Where do I fit? Who are really my people? Like, do I show up to church just because I do this out of, you know, habit and my family wants me to be here? Or am I here because I want to be a part of the Jesus people? Like, we're, we're gathered together because we have a common hope and a common identity in Christ. Moses had to determine, are the fleeting pleasures of this world what I'm going to give my life to? Or the kingdom of God? Verse 26. He considered... The reproach of Christ, so the difficulty of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to a future reward, to the reward to come. By faith, verse 27, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. How do you endure in faith day after day, week after week. If you look at your circumstances, you can see, or you look at the pleasures of the world, you will not be able to endure in faith. How do we endure in faith? We look to the one who is invisible. How cool is that in reference to the book of Esther? People will look at the book of Esther and say, well, God's invisible there. Yeah, but that's just the exact point to get us to understand who he is and how he's at work in the world. We endure by looking to the one we can't see with our eyes, but we entrust our lives to him because he is good and he is faithful. This morning, do you understand God's providence? Do you trust in him even if life is not going the way you want? And do you understand that your response to that is that your identity and your belonging and your purpose would be driven by him, that he would transform the way you live? And some of you here this morning may find yourself, not all of us, but some of you may find yourself in a, for such a time as this moment, have faith. <laughs> Act in faith. Remember what Esther said, if I perish, I perish. Like, I'm going to go into this trusting God for such a time as this, God is at work in your life. Let me pray for you, and then we're going to sing a final song together this morning. Would you bow your heads with me?
God, thank you for the book of Esther. God, thank you for these books of the Bible that we, we don't always turn to. We know from vacation Bible school or Sunday school stories, but just to think about the world that Esther lived in, uh, a world of political power and sex trafficking and fear politics. And we, we live in a world that feels dark in those ways, a, a world that feels difficult in those ways. And yet in the midst of that, God, we believe that you are in control. God, that you alone can rescue, that you alone hold all things together. And so, God, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that's just struggling to trust you with the circumstances of their life, God, that they would know that even if it's not easy to see you, even if it doesn't feel like you're in control, God, that the truth of your word would sustain them today. God, that they would know that you are good and loving. And Father, I pray that for each of us, as we think about our identity, where we belong, where we fit in, what church we're a part of, how we live out our lives, what difference are we going to make in the world, God, that we would respond in faith that Esther had it for such a time as this moment where she was able to respond in faith because she knew that you were faithful. God, I pray for our teenagers who are away this weekend, many of them. God, teenagers and college students who are here this morning who are growing up in a world where it's really, really hard to hold on to their identity in Christ. God, there are so many things that would pull us away, so much pressure to fit into other groups or other situations uncertainty about what difference they're going to make in the world. God, help us at Emmaus to do a good job investing in and encouraging the next generation. God, that their identity would be found in Christ, and God, that you would work through them in incredible ways in the days to come. And so, Father, now we, we turn to you in praise that you are the one who rescues. And God, we turn to you right now in prayer, God, that you would draw people to respond right now in prayer as they trust in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.